Thanks for tuning in to Vaguely Local, where we look at the vicinal while leaving latitude for variety. Welcome to episode four. I'm Nick McNamara. On this edition of the podcast, we're talking two things I love, music and TikTok. I'm an old drum major and bass clarinetist, so I was pleased to get an opportunity to meet with Manhattan-based artist Javel Roan, though you might know him as JR Saxophonic on social media. I regularly catch him performing live for his digital audience on my For You page on TikTok, but he's also got a long history of videos you can peruse, and there's more than a few gems on there. Javel was one of 100 artists chosen for the TikTok for Black Creatives program in 2021, and hasn't been quiet about the impact the platform has had on his career, as well as his concerns about the proposed Restrict Act, which goes beyond just TikTok and giving the federal government power to limit or remove access to information and communication tech products and services through a national security argument. The bill has some bipartisan support currently, though has raised some concerns by others, including from the nonprofit Electronic Frontier Foundation and creators like Javel. I get into that topic with Javel, how he got onto the platform in the first place, but also take a look back at his musical background starting in Kansas City and how it led him to where he is today. Let's get started. I wanted to start off a little light and just ask you a little bit on the sort of equipment side of things. Yeah. I think I was listening to one of your lives mm-hmm. either earlier this week or last week, and yeah. someone asked you about reeds. Yeah. And you mentioned you used classical reeds. Was that the Van Doren type? I do. I use Van Doren. Uh, I've used everything, though. I mean, you know, right now nobody's paying me. So, I mean, whoever wants to, you know, kind of endorse and make that happen, then let's see what your reed's talking about. But no, I, I use Vandoran, just the basic classical reeds that probably you used when you were growing up, you know, old navy blue box. I also use Legere, just kind of depending on, Legere, are they, they're like a synthetic reed, you know, that's good for jazz improvisation. It's a very flexible reed. So at the tip, it's a little bit thinner. So it vibrates and oscillates more, so you get a, a bigger tone, if you will. Yeah, see, I play bass clarinet, yeah. so I always used tenor sax reeds, but the Van Doren jazz yep. variety. You know the secret. Yeah, so a, I, yeah. I don't know. It's interesting because I never played jazz. I yeah. was always, I did marching band and I did classical type traditional band. And for you, someone who does more jazz and other types of mm-hmm. similar music, to play a classical reed, I'm curious what led to the decision to go that so, route. It's a few things. So... The quality of the reed seems to be more consistent for me. And even if it's not, then with a classical reed, they're normally thicker reeds. And I can shave them down on the edges. And that'll give me kind of the the control that I need and the response that I need. So I'm a... You know, I can be a reed snob at times, <laughs> but I think I think the reason why I like the classical reeds is also, I mean, I, I started as a classical player. You know, I'm a classically trained musician. A lot of the, the classical things, um, you know, music, Bach, Beethoven, uh, Guyra Parts, you know, those are kind of the, the places that I started. And so, you know, for me, I think the classical sound kind of kind of resonates with me in a sense. But I do, again, I shave my reeds down at times just to get that response. Because when you're running some passages on there, you know, it's nice to have that reed to be uh, quick to respond and close and respond in that way. So, yeah, I don't know if you get what I'm saying, but yeah. More or less, more (laughs) or less. Uh, I'll say you have a lot more experience than me in terms of I've never shaved my own reeds. So I've never had that experience or known the peculiarities of like exactly what I'm looking for in a reed. I just kind of dealt with what they gave me out of the box and hoped it had some durability to it. Yeah, same. You know, (laughs) and and, and honestly, I would would throw the ones away that didn't quite. I was like, man, every time I put on this reed, it just sounds so like flat and 
And I and I had a friend actually he came here uh, while I was on a concert years back, and he 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 sat down with me and showed me how to shave a reed right before one of the concerts I did. So it was it was incredible. So yeah. experience is just a whole nother game. Yeah. It really helps you out. Looking back, you have a musical family. Is that yeah. really what got you into music to start with? Was it a family man, a family game? Man, it wasn't even a, it wasn't even a question <laughs> for me. Uh, you know, like music music was something that you know I was born into. You know, because you know, of course you got the church. You know, and then you got like. My dad was a southern, a southern kind of. He lived in the country. My dad was a country boy. He was uh, raising crops and hunting and all those things. That's that was my dad for sure. You know, he 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 naturally. My dad was the first person to kind of introduce me to music. He had the guitar. You know, he's a rhythm folk guy. He liked BB King. He liked a lot of blues. He liked a lot of uh, you know soul music. Al Green. He also liked a lot of like. Um, you know, rock type music too. So he, he had like Eric Clapton, uh, Eric Clapton, you know, early day Eric Clapton, he was rocking. Uh, and then like he had people like, um, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Uh, he had people like, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix. I grew up listening to those kind of people, you know, as a, as a one, two, three, you know, and my dad would introduce us. We'd be downstairs in the basement, you know, a little small room in the basement and he, we'd be sitting on the radio and he plays guitar. You know, and introduce us as we like, like we're superstars or something, you know. Uh, and I had three other brothers and, and we slide across the floor and he'd play, make up songs. You know, he could, he had that gift to where he could play like a, a blues rhythm patch kind of thing. And he say, hey, we're here right now, you know. So I actually adopt a lot of that stuff into what I do as a content creator. And it's, 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 it's paid off well, you know. It's important to know. I can't ignore the fact you're from Kansas City. And it's, Kansas City, it's yeah. such a huge jazz community there. Absolutely. I saw, I was looking into sort of the jazz scene in Kansas City a few years back. And a phrase stuck out to me. It was referred to as like, New Orleans is the birthplace of jazz. But yeah, it grew up sure. in Kansas City. Absolutely. And how does that, what type of experience is that or what influence is that to someone as a young player growing up? What, how do you, what do you take away from that vibe? You know, okay, so growing up in Kansas City, you kind of get used to jazz. It's like, it's it's normal. Like, you, what? Jazz and Kansas City go hand in hand. So growing up in Kansas City, I didn't think nothing of it. Like, jazz was just normal in a sense, you know? Um, so we, we grew up with legends like Bobby Watson, who was playing the saxophone, you know, one of the, one of the greatest saxophone players um, still living, you know. And then to find out in my high school years that my grandmother grew up with Charlie Parker, you know, like knew him to the point where her husband uh, was taught by him and mentored by him, even to the point where when Charlie Parker passed away in New York, her husband was there. Like, that's how close they were. And I was just like, I had no idea until... Talk I got older. So jazz uh, has its inner workings all throughout the city of Kansas City. And even if you walk the streets of Kansas City, you can kind of see it, you know, in the in the buildings. You can feel it in, in, the, in the 18th and Vine Historical Jazz District. You can see it in the Negro League Baseball Museum. You can feel the interwovenness of, of how jazz and culture is, is still intertwined into Kansas City. Even down to our new airport, you know, you got saxophones literally on the ceiling there. So it's incredible what Kansas City has been able to cultivate and still keep some traditions while inspiring new innovation as well. You mentioned your high school experience as well. And I did a little bit of research. I did yeah. some digging on you. You went to F.L. Schlegel. Is I that did. Correct? I did. I went to F.L. Schlegel, man. Yeah. And you wrote, studied under Reginald May. Reginald L. May. Yeah. Uh, what was that like? What's that experience like? So, it's, it's very different from my yeah. high school band experience. Yeah. I know you're a high knee marching band. Yeah. We did the more core low yeah, knee no. style marching. It's very different. Yeah. No, we, we come from, you know, the HBCU, baby, you know, historically black college and university style marching. But the interesting thing is uh, Mr. May, who was my band director, uh, he graduated from Florida A&M University, right? 
And remember, I told you, like, there's this interwoven kind of music history in Kansas City, right? So let me tell you something that most people would not even think about. The whole HBCU high-stepping and dancing with your horn type thing, that came from Kansas City, believe it or not. And you're like, no way. Actually, yes. And it's so weird how Southern style marching originated in Kansas City. How so? Well, um, there was a guy named Dr. William P. Foster, and he is what you call the doc of historically black marching or Southern style marching and dancing and playing. He grew up, guess where? Kansas City, Kansas. Exactly where I'm from. He would go on to graduate from KU. He went to, um, I know KU, but he went to KU and he graduated from KU and uh, he took the military type training that he had and then he took it into college marching band and so everything was sharp quick fast you know and then he would incorporate you know the the cultural side of it which is like the r&b or the soul you know and they would he would write the tunes with lindy b Sargent, who was the arranger at that time and he would write the tunes for bands and this band would go all over the world man i mean i'm when i say all over the world literally france i mean italy they've been everywhere they were even in the super bowl with prince uh the prince super bowl that we saw that was florida a&m but that was all influenced by dr william p foster you know now dr william p foster's been gone long gone but that was my band director's band director if that makes sense so, so in a way, he's like the, so to speak, if you look at it through like an academic lens, like your academic grandfather in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and so my grandmother went to high school with Dr. William P. Foster, you know? So it's just like, man, to, to have those connections and not know that you have those connections until you're actually at that point. So I got a chance to shake Dr. Foster's hand and tell him thank you and all those things. And they even had uh, NBC and ABC were all there uh, my, my freshman year at uh, Florida A&M. And I think he passed away maybe like two or three years later. So it was, it was incredible. So thank you, Dr. Foster. And thank you to uh, Mr. May, who is uh, my all-time favorite band director. Did I read right that Mr. May recruited you to go to high school there? He did. Is Man, that a common you... experience? Like, uh, do a lot so... of people get recruited to go to a high school band like you know, that? I, well, I think they try to make their presence known in a sense. Like, band directors will try to, you know... Normally around that eighth grade kind of state concert, you'll see your high school band directors. I don't want to say if they're good, but if they really care about the arts, a lot of times they'll show up to that eighth grade concert if they're teaching in high school because they want to kind of build a relationship with that student. And I think that the music teachers were talking is like, hey, this guy, he's pretty good. You know, I was skipping I was skipping levels in band in middle school, which was kind of cool. And I think she was talking about me to him because, you know, he's marching band and I, I was a low brass player at the time. And so he comes up to me and says, uh, man, you need to come play at the hottest high school around. And he tells me FL Slago, right? Because at that time, I was kind of in between going to F.L. Slago and there's another school called Sumner where Dr. William P. Foster graduated from. And so that was that was kind of my experience. And I was like, I'm going to Slago because I want to be in band. <laughs> you mentioned you started out in low brass. I think it was euphonium that you were really playing a lot at the yeah. time and uh, cornet, things like that. Yeah. How yeah. do you make the switch over to saxophone, which is really seems to know. be your bread and butter these <laughs> days? I don't know. It's funny because I started out on the viol not violin. I started out on the cello. And my mom put me in this in cello when I was in fifth grade. You're supposed to do it in fourth grade in Kansas. And so they put me in advanced band in fifth grade and uh, I quit. Like I, I, I played cello for like two weeks. I was like, no, nope, I'm not doing that. I was mad at my parents and everything because like they were teaching advanced like music. And I was like the newbie, you know, and I was like, I don't know what he's talking about. A whole note, a quarter note, play this strum. I'm like, this is foreign, you know. So I quit, went home crying like two weeks later. And I said, music is not for me. Well, sixth grade, my, my dad said, why don't you try to play in a, like a horn or something? So I did. I enrolled in band sixth grade. 
Uh, and I don't know from the experience of experiencing being so behind <laughs> in that fifth grade class, um, I seemed to excel on the trumpet. And so I started to, you know, be able to play things that most of the sixth graders couldn't even play. They were still playing whole notes and quarter notes and things like that. I was already kind of do that, do that, you know, kind of figuring it out, you know, in my, in my mind. And I was listening to a lot of smooth jazz. Remember I said like, cause you know, like I said, Kansas city is, it's interwoven with the jazz history. So we had a station called 106.5, the city. Uh, it was a, it was a smooth jazz station, which not even RIP is not even around anymore, but that station would, uh, would become a friend to me because I would go and listen to people who would inspire me, you know? It can't be stated more just how important experiencing music that you're into can really sort of cultivate your development as a musician too. Yeah. If you don't experience the type of sounds you want to make, how do you go out and make them? That's a fact. That's a fact. And, but I think that's, but I also think that's part of the excitement, right? Because, you know, just like we're talking, you know what I'm saying? And I learned this from Wayne Shorter. Uh, just like we're talking, uh, the more we talk, the more we build trust for one another, the more we develop a relationship, the more we kind of get a feel for one another, right? It's the same way with music. Like, you know, so there are really no wrong ways to do it, you know? And I know a lot of people say, well, there's some wrong notes you can play. Well, technically, but I mean, maybe it was meant to be that way, you know? And so I've learned to embrace the differences in music and experiment. So there's there's something that I do on the soprano that I, I've i yet to hear another soprano do. Kind of this weird, like, sound that I do. But I, I, I like the sound of it, you know? I like the feeling of it, you know? But again, you have to find inspiration first. And that's, you're right. So I, it starts with the foundation. When you think back, is there a particular song that comes to mind that you think of as maybe one of your first great challenges that you work to overcome? Or maybe there's a recent one that comes to mind Man. instead of a first. Yeah, no. First, I think, <laughs> I think my first one was with Mr. May. I was in band and classical, classical music. And there was a song called Andante at Allegro. There was a passage in it. It came about because my band director would take us to different places and we would compete to be in bands and all this stuff so we could make all state band, all city band, all those fun things. Honor bands and the yeah. like. And so you had to sight read, right? And I, th I consider myself a pretty good sight reader. You know, I was a freshman and I was out playing. I was still out playing most of the other freshmen. You know, I didn't make a big deal out of it, but I, I could outplay most of them. And so my band director had me to teaching music theory. Make a long story short, I, I had a blind audition and all my friends, the seniors, because it was like one freshman and seniors who went to audition because he didn't want to take anybody else. He's like, yeah. And so I went and auditioned and then they gave me sight reading and I thought I did good, but I butchered it because there was like it was some barred eighth notes, um, dotted eighth notes, and it just shook me. It was like <laughs> it was like a, it was like an eighth note, bar eighth note, followed by like a dotted quarter note, and I was like, okay. And anyway, long story short, my band director would kind of take note of that, and then he gave me the same exact sheet music as my solo for um, state competition, and so I took that. And it was challenging. You know, it was it was a it was a really challenging part. They had a bunch of like staggered triplets in it and uh, you know, dotted triplets. So it was like that I will never forget this. And I spent literally I, I would skip lunch in high school just to practice in the practice room because I was like, I promise you, this will never beat me. And my friends would come and they'd visit me in the in the practice room uh, over lunch because they'd be like, dude, you crazy. And I just I just never wanted to allow music to beat me in the sense, you know, you got to keep the love for it, too. You yeah, know? man. Yeah. 
speaking of the love for music, you're really getting an opportunity to express that a lot these days through your TikTok platform and, for sure. of course, public performances yeah. too. But, you know, a notable thing in your recent history is you were chosen as one of 100 different individuals in the TikTok for Black Creators yeah. program, yeah. only one of two instrumentalists, if yes. I remember That's correctly. Fact, yeah. and. One, how does that feel? And two, how does this come about? Where, how, where does this come from? <laughs> yeah, man. So that's that. Those are great questions. I think. I think number one, uh, you know, to be chosen, I was just floored, dude. I mean, just literally floored. Like, how in the world? You know, number two, uh, to be chosen and to be one of two instrumentalists. I mean, we don't sing, we don't do anything else. We just literally play instruments. It felt like a, a huge honor and a, and a responsibility, right? Like, there's only two of us, so we got to represent for TikTok. Like, we got to go hard for the instrumentalists because we trying to eat too <laughs> uh and then finally um how did it how did it come about i think the the way that it came about was i i actually had a, a texting group and i call them the guys um it's five of us four comedians and myself i'm like i don't fit in this group at all uh, but they're all comedians and i used to uh do shows with them I, and during the intermission i would play in their intermission and i would record on the camera behind uh them doing their sets you know during the pandemic they all were you know locked up but we kept we kept in touch we would you know talk to each other and talk about things, and, and they were like, "Dude, you need to get on TikTok, man. I think you would kill it, Jr." And I was like, "Man, I don't, I don't think TikTok really is filling musicians because I, I was already on there, and I only had like maybe two, three followers. <laughs> I started uh, consistently posting. It's like, man, post consistently, do three times a day. Da, 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 da. I was like, I'll try. We have nothing else to do. We're pandemic up, you know. I made that word up, but you know, we're 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 <laughs> in the house, you know. <laughs> and so um, we're quarantined. That's the proper term. Okay, there you go. The the interesting thing is, uh, you know, I got a chance to really develop as a musician and just love what I do. And it kind of was a rebirth for me in the sense of uh, music. So that's kind of how it happened. One of my friends who was in that group, Rob, was like, hey, there's a there's a TikTok program for black creatives. I think there's some money involved. Uh, there was no money involved for me, but I still got selected. And it was beyond money in the sense of what all they taught us. I got a chance to meet Common, got a chance to meet Charlemagne the God, Gabrielle Union, uh, you know, some, some industry topic, industry exec record labels and all that fun stuff. Got a chance to learn how to make sustainable income being a creator and how to brand myself. You know, I got the chance to talk with some of the top marketing specialists in the world, which was pretty cool to have one-on-one -on -one, uh, time in, in that sense. Uh, and they really did help me a lot to understand who I am and to establish a brand, even public speaking. You know, they gave us public speaking courses on how to do interviews and all this fun stuff. So Yeah. And I believe it was a three-month course. Six it's months. Six, six months. months. Okay. Yeah, six months. And it seems like it's had like a lasting effect on yeah. you. Because if I remember hearing one of your videos, you were talking about like really questioning whether this yeah. was the route you wanted to keep going yep. in life and just as yep. a creator. Yeah, man. I mean, shoot. At that time, I, you know, you get you get in your 30s, you know, you start to rethink life. You're like, dang, I'm, I've completely failed out here. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I'm about to turn 30, so yeah, you're giving so, me so some like, premonitions so of like what I'm already hit, feeling. When you hit 30, it's like you get this like kind of midlife crisis kind of vibe. Like, well, okay, these are 30s. You're supposed to have a house. You're supposed to have a dog. You're supposed to kind of know what you're doing. And I, I spent a lot of time in my 20s like really trying to get out there. And I mean, you know, and so like for me, it was a little heartbreaking. And I was like, well, maybe I should turn it back and just kind of, you know, pass it on to whomever for me i was kind of I, I was really at that point where i was like you know maybe it's time to pass the torch you know and i was kind of there investing in my kids and you know trying to figure that out and this sort of reinvigorated a bit of your passion for continuing to create them definitely did man uh you know to see that people actually appreciated what i was doing i don't, I don't care who you are as an artist man when you put your art out there 
it's a vulnerable place, dude, because like we literally are playing from our heart. You know what I'm saying? We're, we're showing off our skills. We're showing off our what we think is talent to not get any feedback. It can be kind of heartbreaking at times. And so, like, I think uh, <laughs> especially if you like plan for something big, it is like a flop. Right. So I think artists in and of itself, man, you got to you got to have some thick skin to uh, be persistent, to know, hey, you're still dope. No matter if one person shows up or a million people show up, you're still dope. And you just got to keep believing that. And, that. and that's one thing I had to make in my mind it's like hey i'm still created to do this man you know whether there's a million people watching or if there's one person watching i'm gonna give them the same performance you know and i really do TikTok has had this, such a big influence on your career, your musical passion, and your interest to continue doing what yeah, you do. Sure. And that leads us into maybe the more unfortunate part of the conversation, <laughs> uh, which oh. is there's the, I'm sure you've heard about it, there's yeah. the Restrict Act, which is up yeah. there being TikTok considered band. in Congress. Yeah. It's framed as a TikTok ban for yeah. sure, but of course it's is broader than that as right. well. And what has was your sort of your first reaction when you heard about this prospect and some of the conversation going on around it? You know what's crazy about that whole thing? So TikTok actually reached out to a few creators to go to DC to speak about their experiences with TikTok. A few of my friends from the Black Creators Program, there were only a hundred of us. We all know each other because we got a chance to meet each other, hang out in LA and all that fun stuff. And we kept in touch. I, I text them, you know, we still talk and these guys are doing incredible things all over the world. Some of them went to speak and to share with Congress, you know, exactly what's what how it's changed their life and how how impactful it will be if tiktok were to go away um it's literally it has changed our lives you know financially socially even uh in the mental health standpoint you know for helping others you know getting other through things i mean even shoot getting through the battle with my daughter with cancer being an advocate for childhood cancer you know like i mean there's so many avenues as to you know how detrimental it would have been to lose an app like TikTok. But it covers not just TikTok, it's all social media, which is kind of scary because then you start talking about, you know, your constitutional rights, you know, your 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 rights to free speech, your rights to even free thought and how that comes about, you know, and, and what does that look like? If government can control or censor what we see, then I think we probably should start speaking up a little bit more because that means that they're getting comfortable playing with our rights. <laughs> And that makes me nervous. I must admit, I feel similarly when I hear about it. I was doing some research into sort of the exact specifics of the law. And I know you're not a lawyer, so I'm not yeah. going to ask you to speak to that well, or mean, anything you know, like I, that. But I pull my law degree out. Of <laughs> but there's, you know, you hear from one side that any of the penalties included in this law, and there are penalties yeah. included for violation of if a ban comes down, because the, the law itself doesn't specifically stay that TikTok for sure is going away. Mm -hmm. It just creates provisions through which it could potentially be pulled out of the U.S. market. Yeah. And there's penalties that come with it. Now, some senators will tell you these are intended to be aimed at the companies or the providers or those who maybe are providers and try to work around this ban. But if you read the law, nothing in it specifically states only providers can do it. So it creates this anxiety out there because reading it, there's up to 20 years in prison or Ugh, yep. uh, on the criminal side and then um, up to a million dollars yeah, in I saw penalties. The parts. Yeah, yeah, I was like, what? And that's just the criminal side. There's yeah. also civil penalties of like up to a quarter million dollars mm -hmm. and there may be a little bit of missing information people see it as a minimum 20 years but it's it's yeah. up to so it's a maximum but that's still even even a few years in prison to me makes me nervous and it yeah. it's, it has a cooling effect a chilling effect on people's willingness to go out and try this i also though wonder whether some people might go out and try it because of all of the talk about it that the, the streisand effect sort of, of thing. of course i mean 
I think I think it's a catch twenty two when it comes to the idea, you know, that you can literally lose your freedom for posting content or even marketing content because let's talk about the business side of this people utilize this app to market their businesses you know to grow their businesses and so to talk about being given prison time for literally trying to create a better life or you know live the american dream is absolutely insane right i mean that's the whole point of why we work so hard a lot of us is we want to we want to have the you know the white picket fence we want to live the life that we have freedom to move around and to live the type of life that we we all dream of right the american dream you know and so to me it, it's cringy in the sense of how they're trying to initiate this even the committee's cringy to me how they were interviewing the CEO of TikTok and even the the misinformation that they had there. I mean, some of the stuff was, you know, does my Wi-Fi connect to TikTok? And and does TikTok have access to my Wi-Fi? <laughs> like, what kind of question is that? And then the level of, you know, they, they grilled him, you know, the level of grilling that he went through. And, you know, it's crazy because, and I'm be real, it, TikTok has way less violations than, than Meta. And uh, I probably shouldn't say that because I'm, but I love you guys both, um, TikTok and Meta. Uh, I'm a partner with you guys both and I love you. But, you know, on paper, Meta had way more violations than uh, than TikTok. Yeah, know? when you look at the issues raised about a company like TikTok, yeah. do you see the same issues present in other social media Absolutely. sites? Absolutely. I mean, you always have privacy concerns, you know. Um, I think, I think the, I think that a lot of it is is stemmed, you know, from a political. There's a political kind of um, agenda there, where you know, it's I, at the end of the day, they they say it's a Chinese company, but TikTok is not even based in China. Uh, the guy's actually in Singapore, but. The way that politicians have spent the whole narrative is this is Chinese app. They're spying on us. They're doing all these things. And, you know, if you do a little bit of research, you'll find out that some of that is not true. The majority of it. If you were to have the experience on TikTok or if it were to go away, I, yeah. what do you think What's the impact next? on your career yeah. is there? You know, what? in <sighs> addition to just the social ramifications of passing a law like this, what's the personal ramifications for creators and business folk like you? We're going to be impacted. As much as we like to say we don't depend on just one app, hey, TikTok has done something that no other app has done. Here's the beauty of TikTok. Here's why everybody always like, love. this is why people love TikTok so much. And it is the fact that it introduces you to an audience who knows nothing about you, who've never who've never known you. All of our other social media apps are connected to the people we already know in the past. Now they're trying to replicate kind of what TikTok is doing. But in the past, there was no app that would just immediately send you to somebody you didn't know. And then you'd have an audience. So they instantly gave you an audience. Right. So it's like, who wouldn't want that as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, as a model, as a as a singer, as a rapper, as a as an instrumentalist? Who wouldn't want a free audience? And that's what TikTok was providing. And I think that was the thing that set TikTok apart from every other app was the ability to have an audience that you never had before. And I think that the other cool part about TikTok is that it not only created an audience, but it allows you to find your real audience. And I'm like, wow. So now I have supporters, real supporters. I have a community. I have, you know, all these things that I would have never had without TikTok. Right. So if all that goes away, you know, how does that affect us? Right. It impacts us financially. You know, my life has been financially changed by TikTok. It just if we're talking just TikTok, it's social media in general, but TikTok per se. We talk about finances. You talk about the social aspect. I lose friends. I lose connections. I lose, you know, my connections with brands, my connections with record labels, my connections with potential clients, my connections with, you know, potential opportunities. I can say this now because it didn't happen, but I got a call from ABC like, you know, last week, you know, 
because, you know, somebody just happened to see my live, you know, who just happened to hop in the live. Right. And so it's just like those type of opportunities don't really happen on something like a Facebook, because what is Facebook? Facebook is people, you know, you got to invite people, you know, to that space in order to get there. The same with Instagram. You got to kind of start out with your own people, your social network, and then you kind of invite people to get there. Uh, and it's there's no type of for you page for if you will. I mean, there's like they have a discovery type thing going on, but you have to like flip to a whole different page and kind of navigate through that. But it's not really the same. And the algorithm isn't as sophisticated, I, perhaps. Yeah, I don't think so. But for me, life would probably change dramatically. I, you know, I'm grateful that I'm starting to get more shows now. That's something that I wasn't getting, you know, early in my days on uh, social media. And, and that provides more financial opportunities. And, uh, you know, more opportunities for people to physically get to know me in, in real life, in IRL, you know. <laughs> uh, and so um, if social media goes away, I, I I really hate that for up and coming creators. I really hate that for um, even established creators, because some of them don't have another audience anywhere. You know, they've invested fully in TikTok. And so it just it just kind of sucks. You you may not get the opportunity that others were, you know, and I'm just like, man, my experience, I'm grateful. If everything were to stop right now, I'd be grateful because my life has been changed. Um, but for people coming up and they're like, dang, man, I, you know, right there, <laughs> you know, one one viral video away from changing my life. If you type in right now, hashtag ban TikTok in TikTok or Instagram or anywhere like that, you'll see there are tons of creators who have actually put the number to your Congress people that you can call to request to talk to your state senators and your state uh, legislature to voice your concern, to voice how you feel about it. I'm a big proponent of, um, of making sure that your voice is heard, but not only heard, but felt. So making sure you register to vote, <laughs> letting them know you're a registered voter and let them know you're, you're a taxpaying American citizen speaks volume. Thanks again to Javel Roan for meeting with me in the Wildcat 919 studios. If you want to learn some more about his work, check out javelroan.com. There you'll find a bio and links to all his social accounts. You can also perform a search for JR Saxophonic as well. He's performing at the ATL Night of Praise at the Covenant Church coming up on April 22nd in Georgia. Music in this podcast is provided by my friend and artist Blush Akimbo. You can look them up on SoundCloud, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. And feel free to reach out to me by emailing me at vaguelylocal at gmail.com. Further thanks to Wildcat919 for their support in carrying this podcast. I've been Nick McNamara, and I'll talk to you next time. Peace. Peace.